just a moment, we are going to be blessed again by hearing from Sparky delivering the Word of God to us. And uh, our scripture for today comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Will you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we pray that now as we hear from your word, that you enable us to understand, that you grant us repentance, you grant us faith, so that we might have believing hearts, that we might be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We pray that you would give Sparky the ability to faithfully communicate your word to us, and that we would leave transformed. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, church. Trust you've had a good week. I hope that after Thanksgiving Day, you're fed up. If not, maybe after I preach, you'll be fed up. When I uh, came in today... I got acquainted with the doorman who welcomed me to the church. The doorman out there was Henry, young Henry. I think from the laughter, some of you might know Henry. He's my new best friend. And uh, I had a great time talking with him. He told me that his grandmother had been all over the world. And then he said, well, half the world. I said, the inside or outside? He was not sure, I don't think, but... Anyway, she's quite a traveler, he says, and so she's an older lady, and I'm sorry about that. And uh, I asked him, well, how old do you think I am? This is a dangerous question, especially for Henry. He said, mm, you're probably 50. That's when he became my new best friend. And I said, nope, you got to go a little higher there, Henry. And then he, he said, uh, 60. I said, no, you're not there yet. And so he then guessed 71. And I said, you are correct. But he was no longer my best friend. So anyway, <laughs> I learned about some other folks today. Um, we were talking about being out in Powhatan here, and uh, I started to bring in my Mountain Dew with me. Uh, that is a soft drink. 
just to make it clear what that is. Because uh, my grandfather, I, I confess sins every once in a while. I don't know if I confess this one to you. But my grandfather had a big farm in Pea Ridge Community, North Carolina, out near Hendersonville. And I used to go walking out in the woods as a little kid. And I came up one day on this great big contraption out in the holler. And it had all kinds of tubes and things like that. I didn't know what that was until later. And I was told. Magic place. It also produced Mountain Dew, but not the kind I drink. So anyway, we were laughing about that. And I hear that there is someone. I've got your name in the church who lives out in Franklin County who does know about those things. So I may want to talk to you after the service. It's good to be with you. You've been so kind and gracious. Uh, this is, uh, from the schedule standpoint, uh, I think this is the last time I have an opportunity to be here. I was with you at the start of this. Uh, but I'm just so grateful for the privilege of coming to preach God's word. Henry, when I asked him what I'm supposed to preach on today, he said the Bible. I said, I can do that. I said, any particular part? He said, Genesis. But if I'm going to get my passage today and I start at Genesis, we're going to be here a long time. So I asked him if I could start in Philippians. So we're going to do that. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. And uh, let's have a prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace to us as your people. I'm thankful for this fellowship of believers that I've had a privilege of getting acquainted with. I thank you I could partner with them in the gospel, even as Paul has talked about with the Philippians. And Father, I thank you for the good work you've begun in them, and we pray that you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. Until that day, I pray that they may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that they will approve what is excellent and prove to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. May you fill them with the fruit of righteousness. And Lord, today as I speak now, may I open my mouth that you might fill it with your word and with your truth. Help me to be faithful to the text. Help me to be encouraging to the saints. May we grow in your grace, and we thank you for your presence with us in these moments. And we pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We live in a dark world. I know the sun is out, but we live in a dark world. Filled with anger, selfishness, greed, wickedness. Fear, confusion, doubt, unrest, divisions, moral decay, ungodliness, and I'm sure we could add so many more things to that list. It seems when I look around the world today that the foundations of all that is morally and ethically good and right are being shaken and undermined. And we cry out for the psalmist, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? What do we do in a world like that? And the implied answer in the psalmist there in Psalm 11 is nothing. 
We can do nothing about it. We're in deep trouble. In fact, verse 2 of the psalm even speaks of the darkness and the fears that these things bring upon those who are upright of heart, who want to do what is right. In that psalm, some good people were even saying that God's people must flee. Let's flee. Let's get away. Let's isolate ourselves. There's nothing that the righteous can do. But, but, the psalmist reminds them that there is a king, a king who reigns, and the Lord is in his holy temple. His people must look to the king as we must look in these dark days to our righteous king who is for us and who is with us. Who can be against us? And he calls us not to be fearful and to flee, but to follow him. His name is above every name, and that name is Jesus. And he is the light of the world, John 9, 5 tells us. And he has called us to be his people. He has called us to be lights as well in this dark world. As Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16, with multitudes of people surrounding him from all the regions throughout Palestine, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The Apostle Paul, who was a light to the Gentiles, Acts chapter 13, has a challenge for the church of Gentiles in Philippi regarding what they needed to do as they find themselves called out by God and yet surrounded by a crooked and twisted generation, Philippians 2.15. And what he says to them serves as a much-needed reminder to me, to all of us, in dark days in which we live. So let me put this passage into context for you. We're going to, to look at verses 12 through 18, even though I know you talked about verses 12 and 13 last Sunday, but I've got to have that in the context today. But, but let's go back to the context. <clears throat> you know, our, our passage today, Steve read for us, <clears throat> it begins with the word, therefore, chapter 2, verse 12. And whenever you see the word therefore in Scripture, you need to ask yourself a question. What is it there for? Therefore means what is it there for? That's because the therefore in Scripture is usually pointing back to what has been said as foundational to what follows, which points forward to how this can be applied to your life. The late Alec Motier once stated of this context, and I want you to look down at your scriptures, see verses 9 and 12, and listen to his quote as I read here, and you look. He said this, God's therefore, in verse 9, is matched by the Christian's therefore, in verse 12, and that, in a nutshell, 
is what this passage 12 to 18 is about. A therefore that is God's and a therefore that is ours. In other words, God did something and that leads to something that we must do. It demands a response. Look back at what God did, verses 7 and 8. Look at what was done. Is it you consider Jesus and how far he went in his obedience to the Father, verses 78. How far did Jesus go in his obedience? He was obedient even to death. That's how far he took his obedience. God's people should be motivated by following Jesus' example as well. And we need to make a worthy response to the obedience of Christ by our obedience to him. And that takes us back deeper in our context. Actually, this whole passage begins back in Philippians 1.27. And look at that verse for a moment. Paul there is encouraging them, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is what is being said to you as a church. This is what you need as the body of Christ here. So when persecution comes and pressures mount and the days grow darker, These people needed to stand firm. They needed to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. The gospel is worthy of that kind of commitment from his people. And so then we come to chapter 2, verse 1. Paul continues to flesh out what it means to walk worthy of the gospel, to have a gospel life, he says in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort of love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. What mind, Paul? Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And by the way, those Christians did enjoy all those benefits back in verse 1. In fact, you could translate the word if, but grammatically in that, in that syntactical formation there, it actually is better translated since. You have Christ. You have all the things that he has promised. You have the Spirit of God within you. You have the love of God in you. Having said that, Paul goes on to hold forth then in verses 5 and following what the mind of Christ was and is. We see his example, Christ's love, Christ's humility, Christ's obedience there in verses 6 through 8. And then we come across that word in verse 9, therefore, what did God do for his son? God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So note here, 
that Paul is making a clear connection between the work of Christ, verses 6 through 11, and therefore the life of the Christian, verses 12 to 18. This is what the therefore is there for, to connect those two, the work of Christ and how we live. His work changes our perspective, our our ambitions, our pursuits. His work calls us to be like him. And isn't Christ's likeness what we see in Christ, the God's intention for every one of us as believers? As Romans 8.29 reminds us, for those whom he, that is God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God has called you to be like Christ, to follow his example. And so with Christ's glorious example and this wonderful goal before us, Paul then describes what a worthy life looks like in this dark world in verses 12 to 18. So let's look at three aspects this morning. First, there's a call to the patient pursuit of holiness. This is verses 12 and 13. The patient pursuit of holiness. Yes, I know uh, that you had a message last Sunday on 12 and 13, but I don't want to take the other verses out of the context. So I'm going to take just a little time here to kind of review that with you to see what it fully means in this passage. In fact, Levi and I, Levi, I think, preached last week. By the way, he's a wonderful young man. I thank God for him. He is deep into the word. He's got maturity for a 28-year-old that exceeds a 71-years-old guy. And, and I just really appreciate him and Jess, his fiancée. But as we were talking last Sunday, I, I said, uh, you know, you preached on 12 and 13. And that, he says, that was a strange division of text for us to do. And he said, yeah, I know. I said, well, don't worry. I'm going to preach what you preached again. So I said, they'll get it right. He says, well, they probably won't remember anyway. But anyway, you do know that Levi preached last week, right? Okay. So I'll tell him that you remembered. All right. So the patient pursuit of holiness. So if you look at verse 8, mark a word there, just as God's son was obedient to the point of death, so also God's sons and daughters by faith should also obey. You see that word now popping up in verse 12. Let's look at it. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, did you notice the quality of the obedience of the Philippian church? It wasn't uh, evident only when the preacher was there to watch and see and pat them on the back. It wasn't there just because there were other Christians around, and so they were on their best behavior. No, instead, we see here, these Christians were looking to obey always, whether the preacher was there or not. Whether he was present or absent, they were always there. And Paul commends them for this faithful obedience to God. But in what way were they obedient? They were obedient in working out their salvation. Now, that pronoun, your, work out your salvation, is not singular, talking about the individual believers at this point. It's plural. Reminding them of the responsibility that each of us have in the church to encourage one another in the faith. It is a work that we do in building up one another in the body of Christ. You know, when I, when I read this, 
I think of a passage in the book of Hebrews. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. Hebrews is, is, is like a sermon. In fact, many believe it is a sermon. It's a long sermon, longer than mine. But here's what he says there in verse 22 of chapter 10. Let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another together. And all the more as you see the day, the day, the day of Christ drawing near. You know, that guy, Hebrews, can preach. Do you notice that? Let us, let us, let us, let us. We live in a me society. But as Christians, we are in a counterculture. This is about us. This is about the body of Christ, who we are before God. And we have an obligation to encourage each other in our salvation and working out our salvation. But what does that mean to work out our salvation? Well, I'm sure you heard last week. But here's one definition. Your own salvation is to be understood not as an objective yet to be reached. In other words, I'm not working toward being saved or having salvation. It's certainly not a benefit that can be merited. But it is a possession. Something you already have, a possession to be explored and enjoyed ever more fully. Now, if you didn't mark it last week, I want you to mark at this point in verses 12 and 13, three phrases. Work out, work in, and work for. You've got three prepositions there. They're helping us to, to unpack this, this, what it means. You work out your salvation, that is, the salvation you already possess from God, when you diligently cultivate and put it on display in your life. You are, you are working forth the fruit that Paul has prayed for in chapter 1, the fruit of righteousness. Righteousness, which you already have from God, but you need to live that out in your lives. This is nothing less than spiritual growth and sanctification. But how do you do that? How do you work out your own salvation to become as mature as you can be? Here's, here's the easy answer. You can't. I can't. There's so many times I try to work out my own salvation, and I try to do it by myself. But the passage doesn't allow that. Look at verse 13. We see that next phrase, not only work out, but works in. What works in? Who works in? God works in you, giving you what you need and what I need, both in two areas. The will, the willingness, that's a big struggle right there but also the power, the ability, the energy. In fact, the word here is energo. It's God energizes. He gives the strength that you need to do what is right. So he will give you the will to do what's right, and he will give you the strength to do what's right. So what's missing in the equation? Obedience. 
being willing to do what God says. This is to take us toward maturity. But notice a third thing. Because here comes the motivation. This is what it's for. Why do we do this? That we work for, that is because of, or on behalf of God's good pleasure. God's work in us is motivated by His pleasure and for His pleasure. It pleases God to work in you. And you please God when you work out that salvation. Isn't that a high calling for us? Isn't that a great motivation for us? And like our effectual calling, you do believe in effectual calling, right? You are a PCA church. What call God calls, what God calls, we answer. This is an effectual working. God will do it. Jason Meyer expresses it this way. Our work is a derivative of and depend upon God's work. We can't do it at ourselves. Jesus said, without me, you can do, well, a few things. No. Without me, you can do nothing. We are totally dependent. So take heart in a dark and unholy world that you are never alone in your struggles and in your failures or in your pursuit of holiness. Don't give up because God has promised. In Hebrews 13, 5, I love this verse. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And to make his point in the book of Hebrews, it doesn't come out in the English, English translation. There are four negatives he throws in there. So a more accurate translation or literal translation would be this. I will never, 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 never leave you or forsake you. Did you get that? That's what he's saying. It's an exclamation point. So keep working out. Continue on in living out your salvation, trusting in God for his help and strength. After all, Paul did write back in chapter 1, verse 6 of Philippians, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, knows that work, he began the work, he keeps on working in you, he will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. God will never give up on you, never. You have his word on it. So what will working out my salvation look like in me and in the life of the church among the brothers and sisters? Okay, we finish with 12 and 13. We come to the second aspect of the response that we're to make, and that is the shining testimony of a godly life. We pursue holiness, but then there's the shining testimony of a godly life that comes out of this. Verse 14, first three words. Do all things. You know, when I read that, then I would expect a list to come. Okay, I'm standing up here this morning. I'm preaching to you. Get out your piece of paper. Get your pencil. I'm going to give you a list of things to do. I want you to read your Bible. I want you to go to church. I want you to attend Bible study. I want you to be sure to pray. Give to the needs of others. Volunteer on workday at church. Serve on the church committee. Blah, 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 blah. And I can give you a big list. He says, do all things. But you see, he never specifies what the things are. Because God knows what work needs to go in you. And he will do it with you. Of course, Paul isn't just going after doing things. He does say, do all things. But it's in the sense of, okay, whatever you do. Whatever you do. Verse 14. 
But he digs deeper. I don't like that. I like to stay on the surface. I don't like it when some, a, a sermon or a preacher starts boring down into me. You know, that, he has no, no, no reason to do that. No, you're hurting me. You're exposing me. That's what Paul's about to do. Paul's first exhortation may surprise us, but it, we're honest. If we're honest with ourselves, these words are a mirror of how we often live. We look there and we see ourselves. He says, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Okay, do all things. Now, I know a lot of Christians who do a lot of things. I, I think there was a, a, to some Mary and Martha, and Martha was doing a lot of things, and she was also grumbling about it. Lord, tell Mary, get up, come over here and help me. This is, I've got too much to do here. I can't just sit around like she's doing. Jesus says she's chosen the better part. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. First, let's look at these words, grumbling. Grumbling is what we see in the church in the wilderness in Numbers and Deuteronomy. This word, grumbling, it's the same. It's used eight times in the Old Testament, and seven of the eight times in the Old Testament, it speaks of the people of God, the people of God in the wilderness, having been delivered from, from the slavery and bondage, griping about things. Israel constantly grumbled about life, about the leadership, about God's ways in their lives that they did not like or accept gratefully and graciously. I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't like the tie he's wearing this morning. Why didn't he comb his hair differently? Why does he wear those clothes? Why, you know, and, and there's so many things that as preachers, it was, it was interesting that uh, for 40 years, I was a pastor. And, you know, the concerns were not usually about themselves, but it's always about somebody else. Pastor, you know, you, you need to go talk to so-and-so. You, you, they've got a problem here. Why don't you go talk to them? Uh, you, you do a better job of that. Oh, really? I don't know about the problem. You do. Come to church, and well, I don't like the decorations they chose today. I don't like the food they put out today. You know, it goes on and on. We grumble about things. Do all things, but do it without grumbling here. My dad used to come in when I was a kid, wake me up, and he said, rise and shine. You ever heard that one? Do you know what the grumbler says? Rise and whine. Huh. Look at this day. It's too cold. Oh, the leaves are on the lawn again. And I already cleaned them up twice this week. Oh, wait a minute. That's what I said. I read a story about a man who decided to join a monastery. One of the rules of the group, as monasteries often have very stringent rules, was that you could only allow to speak two words every 10 years. That's it. It was a mode of silence. Well, at the end of 10 years, this man was sitting at the table eating, and he said, bad food. It was his two words. Ten years. That's the best he could come up with. Ten more years went by, 
And he said as he rose from the bed that morning, hard bed. That was it, 10 years. He went 10 more years, 30th anniversary with the brothers. And one day he just shouted out, I quit. And the priest in charge said to him, you might as well quit. All you do is complain anyway. One of the prayers that I pray as I get older is that I won't be grumpy, a grouch, a critic. Now, let me ask you some hard questions here. The world sees us in our homes, in our neighborhood, on the jobs, and in everyday life. What do they see in you? But more importantly, what does the world hear when we express our thoughts, our opinions, our frustrations, our angers, our dissatisfactions? Do they hear grumbling? By the way, grumbling is an attitude in life that's always a choice. It's always a choice. So he said, I'm not going to grumble anymore, Pastor. Now, would you just shut up about that? I think you just grumbled. But let's go to the next thing, though. While grumbling is what others hear on the outside, this word for questioning, that is disputing, debating, arguing, criticizing, is really more what we hear on the inside, what we hear on the inside of us. It's what goes through our minds. Because I can stand and talk to you about this or that, keep a smile on my face. I mean, I, I work a couple of other jobs. And when I'm doing that, I'm always being nice. And, but I've got other things sometimes going on in my head. Maybe shouldn't be going on in my head. Grumbling, griping. I don't want to do that for you. <laughs> You know, I, uh, I've got a son-in-law who works for a guy that he calls Mr. Grumpy Pants. And that's the way some of us are. But, but what's worse is when it's inside of you is because you think you're okay because you put on the facade. The reality is what's going on inside of you is far more important than what's going on outside of you. It's something that goes to the very core of our being, to our innermost thoughts that no one hears, no one but God, and God hears it. Is it pleasing to him? Is when you sit there and you, you're, you're listening or you're, you're watching something or you're talking to someone and you're good on the outside, but on the inside you're boiling. What's going on in your mind in a world like ours? What's going on in your mind right now? When's he going to finish? Paul says, in effect, whatever you do or think, approach it with the mind of Christ. And therefore, 2 Corinthians 10, bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Have that mind of Christ. In Philippians, Paul is calling God's people of the new covenant community to be thoroughly committed living lovingly, selflessly, humbly, joyfully pursuing godliness 
and God's will with the right attitudes, both publicly and privately. And where will this lead? Paul tells us in verse 15. Look at the first part. That you may be blameless and innocent. Okay, what about those words? First, to be blameless is to be above reproach. That there are no glaring faults to be seen that would be detrimental to your testimony or the cause of Christ. I mean, none of us are perfect, right? But we can't be blameless in the sense that we're keeping our lives above reproach, above public shame. The second, he says, to be innocent. Huh. To be innocent is to know yourself and have a clear conscience that you are seeking to live what you confess outwardly. I confess to be a Christian. I confess to be a pastor or an ordained minister of the gospel. Am I innocent inwardly and outwardly? You see, what this is to be innocent is it's integrity, personal integrity that you enjoy when you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you may not like what you see outwardly, but what do you see inside? Can you look at yourself in a mirror and say, yes, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. It's the peace that you feel when you lay your head on the pillow at night and you think through how you acted and lived that day, your thoughts, your words, your deeds. A couple of nights ago, I put my head on the pillow and I thought, you know, I said such and such today to that person, just an offhanded remark about something else, and I shouldn't have said that. wasn't innocent. But I knew where to get forgiveness and how to get it. What's the end game of all this? The blamelessness, the being innocent. What's he getting to? No grumbling, no disputing. Verse 15 tells us that you may be. All right. Here's what you become when you live like this. Not grumbling, not disputing, blameless, innocent. You become children of God without blemish. But you know what? You don't just become that. You are that. You are God's child. You bear his name. Live like it. God is always with you, and you are, he is constantly at work in you. You see, before God... And because of Christ, you are without blemish. Here's what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Washed, sanctified, justified. That's what we are in Christ. Paul appeals to God's people elsewhere saying this, Do you not know that you, and by the way, that's a plural, you. He's speaking to the church of Corinth. He's speaking to the body of Christ. Do you not know that you, all of you together, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? As we gather here today in this building, the building is not important, but the church is gathered. And you are the temple of God and God's Spirit dwells among and in you. But Paul 
goes on to make this personal. That was in uh, chapter 3, verse 16. But in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, here's what Paul says. Do you not know that your body, and there it becomes a singular. He's appealing to us for our purity, for our morality, in our ethics. Your body is a temple, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And consider these words from Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. That is, without blemish. It's the same word that Paul uses with the Philippians. And then in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her by having cleansed her by the washing of the water by the word so that he might present to himself in splendor, without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing that she should be holy and without blemish. That's what Christ did for you. That's what husbands should do for their wives. So why is this important? Because of whose we are, we're Christ, we're his children without blemish, and because of where we live. And where do we live? Here's our address, verse 15b. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. I live at the corner of crooked and twisted. Paul is drawing here from the Old Testament. By the way, so much of this, I wish I had time. I could take you back to at least five books of Scripture that Paul is either alluding to or quoting from in this section. He's drawing from the Old Testament. Listen how Moses described his generation in the ears of Israel when, when Moses was kind of fed up to hear in some ways maybe. Deuteronomy 32.5. They have dealt corruptly with him, that is with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished, there's our word, and they are a crooked and twisted generation. Paul's lifted that from the Old Testament. That's the way the people of God were in the Old Testament times under the Old Covenant. Under the New Covenant, we are to be a new people, and it's those who are outside of Christ, who are the twisted and perverted, that we are called to reach with the gospel. See, this is our world, our generation. We live in a culture that is twisted and perverted and lives in darkness. The world that, that is here among us has turned from God. It's turned from everything upside down. The world doesn't believe in God, but it does believe. You see that word believe in the stores, on the streets, in the movies, Polar Express. Pop songs, believe in me. In many churches, too. But belief in what? world talks about belief. Belief is good. Believe yourself. The world has twisted what faith really is. They say it's belief in yourself, belief in Santa, belief in political leaders. It's belief in good works. It's belief in belief. This is a dark world in which we live, but God has called his people to live differently than that, to believe in Christ 
to follow him. And he calls us, therefore, in 15b, to shine as lights in this twisted and perverted world. We are a testimony to God's grace. And Paul here is drawing an image now from the book of Daniel. Daniel had something to say in the final chapters that Paul lifts out and echoes. Daniel was seeing in chapter 12, the latter days. He saw that as a time of trouble, verse 1, as a day in which judgment would come, verse 2. And Daniel writes this, verse 3, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Paul says we need to turn others to Christ. We need to be the light of the world to them, that they might see Jesus, that he is the light of the world who can bring them out of their darkness. How does Paul explain how God's people can shine? Look at verse 16, first phrase, holding fast the word of life. Now look at that translation there, the holding fast. The word here has one of two meanings. It could mean either to hold the word of life to ourselves. We treasure it. This is what we live by. Is that a good good thing to do? To, to hold the word of God to ourselves? Yes, it is. We need, we need to hold on to the foundations that we have. What we do if the foundation is destroyed? The Bible is the foundation. But the second meaning is to hold it forth. We hold forth the word of life. Now, which meaning to choose has been debated by academians and, and, and many commentaries. And then you will find it translated different ways in different passages of the New Testament. But when we come to this passage, I appreciate what one man said in contrasting the world and its darkness to the Christian who has embraced Jesus as the light of the world. He wrote, by contrast, the Christian both holds fast the word of life, just as a lantern holds within itself some radiant element, and also holds forth the word of life, just as from a lantern, a bright outshining dispels the surrounding darkness. The word of life has thus two distinct sides. It is the message which both tells of life and also imparts the life of which it tells. I think both apply in this case. As Christians, you stand firm. You strive together side by side. You hold to the word of life, but you also hold it forth to the world. And let the word of God reach the hearts of those who live in darkness. How can we shine in a dark world without walking in the light, though? That's why you have to pursue holiness, work out your salvation, how you must live differently. How can the world hear if we don't tell them the truth? There was a famed preacher. I think he is still living. He's older than I am now, though. He wrote this, God needs our light where the world is the darkest. The blacker the night, the greater the need for the light bulb. If the bulb doesn't shine, it's not because of the darkness. Darkness cannot put out a light. If the darkness increases until it is black as a cave, it is still not dark enough to extinguish 
a light. No one has yet smothered light by increasing the darkness. Darkness gets darker because the light fails. When we fail to reflect Christ's lights, we let the darkness win. We can curse the darkness around us. We can criticize all the things we don't like in the world today. But the question is, are you shining brightly? Are you holding fast the word of God? Are you holding forth the word of God? Are you living those principles so that others can see Christ and the light in you? When Jesus came and the word was made flesh, John's gospel tells us in him, that is in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. No. Jesus is the answer to the darkness in this world. Now the Lord has called us to shine and share the message of salvation to those who are around us. And the light he gives through the gospel is the only thing that can change people who are part of a crooked and perverse generation. It's our time to shine. It's my time to shine. Now this encouragement for God's children to hold fast and hold forth the word of life has an additional motive for Paul. He's pressing them onward with something in mind. And as we read the closing verses in this next section, and I've only got about this much more to go, hang with me. The third aspect here is we see in verses 16b through 18, the joyful offering of a genuine faith. We've been pursuing holiness. We've been shining out as we work out our salvation, but now the joyful offering of a genuine faith. God's people are to hold fast and hold forth the word of life. Now here it comes in verse 16, so that, that is under this purpose, for this reason, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. But Paul himself may soon be offered up as a drink offering in sacrificing his own life for the sake of the gospel and for God's people at Philippi. He isn't grumbling about it. In fact, he is rejoicing. He is gladly pouring out his life in service to God. He is rejoicing. A word that appears four times in those verses I just read to you. He is rejoicing because he envisions the believers of Philippi one day standing before the Savior, making a sacrificial offering of their faith as a joyous act of worship to him who is the founder and perfecter of their faith by becoming obedient unto death that they might have life. This is what Paul had poured his life out to see. And Paul now can see it in his mind's eye at the day of Christ. Paul has equipped them, challenged them to have a faith that is actively growing, confidently trusting, faithfully sharing, and constantly uh, shining before a dark world. All this to please God who has redeemed them. Through this word picture, Paul is setting their sights on that great and coming day of Christ when the Lord gathers his people unto himself. 
as Hebrews 12 puts it and reminds us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. In life, these saints had, because of the mercies of God, presented their bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God. This was their spiritual worship, and now face-to-face with Christ. And the day will come, the crowning moment, the consummation of our spiritual journey, when they, when we, will offer ourselves by faith fully to the Lord and hear his words, well done, good and faithful servant. This is what Paul lived for, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. This is what he was willing to die for, to see people to whom he ministered stand before the Savior and rejoice that they had been found faithful. I don't know that I'll ever see you again. I'm not scheduled to be back. So I don't know if I'll be back out here. But I'll see you one day. And I pray that the messages that you are hearing from the book of Philippians will help you in your progress in the gospel, the working out of your salvation, that you will do it with joy, not grumbling, that you will serve the Lord with a desire to please him more than anything else. And so all that we have seen of God's word today prompts me with these three final questions to look into your own heart. Bow your heads as I read these questions. Look into your own heart, your own life. First question, am I working out my salvation? That is, am I patiently pursuing holiness? Are you living a life that's worthy of the gospel? Question two, am I shining forth as a light in the world? Am I a shining example of a godly life to those in this church? Is my life a light in the darkness? Question three, am I rejoicing in the hope of the gospel even in dark days? Am I rejoicing to see the day of Christ when I will offer up my worship What will be my sacrificial offering of faith be? Father, we look to you as the Father of lights. We look to Christ, who is the light of the world. And we thank Father, Son, and Spirit for enlightening us and coming to us in our darkness and calling us to yourself. I thank you that you are continuing your work in us. God at work in us. What a thought. Why would God want to work in me? I know I need it, but why would he? Because he loves us. He cares for us. 
He's redeemed us. And he will bring to completion what he started. Lord, do that among your people here at Evergreen. I thank you for the hearts, the lives of the people that I've been able and privileged to speak to for four weeks. May, Father, you use your word, not mine. Use your word to continue to polish your jewels to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray. Amen. God bless you and be with you. Shall we all stand for...